Well, hey, everybody, I'm Adam. I'm a pastor here at the Neighborhood Church. Everyone say, hi, Bud. That's Bud. He's a pastor at the Neighborhood Church. Oh, there we go. Beautiful. Hey, I'm glad to see everybody. I really love this church. I love um, you all. Uh, We are a church that's following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. It's been a while since I've been up here preaching, so I thought I would say that again. We are following Jesus together for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. And I think Toby mentioned this earlier, but I hope you grabbed a bulletin. It kind of says what's going on this month at our church. Um, But one of the things that she announced was that we have a new members orientation next Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon. It's going to be down this hall, and it's coffee and breakfast, and it's a really informal time to kind of talk more about what we believe, how we live that out. It talks about baptism, and it just basically talks about um, all the kinds of things that make us us. And so if you have worshipped with us, if you've prayed with us, if you've attended a neighborhood group with us, we're inviting you to partner with us for God's kingdom in our neighborhood. Because as much as I love this church, I think I'd love it a lot more if you were here serving alongside us. Because everyone has something to give, everyone has something to bless others, and so we hope that you can make that next Saturday. If you can't, that's okay, we'll probably have one Uh, sooner than later in the next couple months because we've got a lot of folks um, ready to take that next step. Well, good to see you. If you have a Bible, I invite you to grab it. If you don't, that's okay. There's one in the seat back in front of you. Or if you've got it on your phone, would you swipe or turn to James chapter 2? James is toward the end of the Bible. It's after a big book called Hebrews. We invite you to turn to James chapter 2. We're back in this series in the book of James, and we're going to be in this book for the next month and a half until we get to the season of Lent. That's when we shift gears to prepare for Easter, but tonight we're back here in James. This series is titled, Live Your Faith. Live Your Faith. If we're honest, faith is something that is pretty ethereal, it's something that's spiritual, it's something that's a church word, a religious word, and maybe what's not on your mind when you think of the word faith is something that can actually be lived out. But for James, who wrote this letter, it's one of the earliest letters in the New Testament, faith was not just something that's nice and pie in the sky. Faith has everything to do with getting all that pie in the sky up out of there and into your hands, feet, and heart so that you can actually live and make a difference in this world. So this letter and this series is all about living your faith. And there is no passage in this book that is more central to that idea that this faith can be actually lived in everyday life than this passage we're going to look at tonight beginning in verse 14. I told you that it's one of the earliest letters that we have. So shortly after Jesus lived his life and brought in God's kingdom, after he died on the cross and after he was raised again to new life and he left this kingdom project to all the wrong kinds of people, not many generations removed we have who we believe to be Jesus' half-brother James as this sort of grizzled mentor with this little powerful prophetic 
get your stuff together kind of letter. So it's one of the earliest letters, and I can imagine that in the earliest church, this was really, really powerful and practical. In the earliest church, you had two primary groups of people. Y'all with me? The first group were Jewish Christians. They were Jewish people who believed in the one true God and who in Jesus of Nazareth saw God's king there in Jesus. So they moved from the Jewish faith into a faith in Jesus and they're now Jewish Christians. But their whole background had been that of a law follower. How many of y'all have read the beginning of the Old Testament? How many of you looked at a book of Leviticus? Robert is raising his hand real high. So gold star Sunday school for you, Robert. You've read Leviticus. Congratulations. Leviticus is filled with all these kinds of laws. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. They come out of a background in which they were following the law. They were all about works. Then you had this other huge group in the early church, and they were Gentile Christians. Have you all heard that word, Gentile Gentile is a word that is basically everybody that's not Jewish. So everybody that's not Jewish had every kind of God you can imagine. In James's day, there was a God for each city. So you have these people who've come from a background where they've had all different kinds of spiritual philosophies and ideas, especially if they were Greeks. If you're like me and you read Greek mythology in middle school, you know that there was all kinds of ideas and philosophies. If you've read Plato or Homer, there were all these kinds of philosophies, and many of them were kind of spiritualized ideals. So what you have in James's church, when James is writing this letter, is these two groups. You've got the spiritual philosophers over here, and then you've got the law followers over here, and they've come from two different backgrounds, two different ideas, and they come together in the name of Jesus. Now, how many of you are married or have been married? Marriage is the experiment where two different people come together in the name of love. And they try to make it work. It's work. And the same was true in the early church. But James in this letter is so practical. Because no matter who you are. Or where you came from. This faith can actually be lived out. And you can actually live like Jesus. No matter who you are. No matter what your background. Why? Because real faith actually transforms your heart and actions. And you see this beautiful marriage look of all the practical, worked out, law type of command things. Getting married with this spiritual faith kind of pie in the sky things. And you see real faith transforming your heart when you come to see Jesus for who he is. And it actually translates into your feet. And you can actually live it out in the power of Jesus. That's what we believe. Because otherwise, we can find a million better things to do on a Saturday evening. But we believe that this faith, that these letters, that the Spirit of God in us actually makes a difference in our life. He transforms us. And real faith is that marriage between those things that are spiritual and those things that are practical. And so our big picture tonight that we're about to see is this. It's on the screen. Real faith expresses itself in works. That's James's message to this early church with these two different kinds of people, with all their ideas about religion, with all their ideas about how to live. James brings them together and he says, look, if you've put your faith in Jesus, it should make a difference in your actual life. 
Real faith expresses itself in real kind of kingdom works. That's the message tonight. And you're going to hear this passage. You may have heard it before if you've been around church. It's a famous passage. And it's also in some ways a controversial passage. But let's read beginning in verse 14 through 26. It's going to be on the screen. I think it should be in the same translation I'm reading. So this is what James says. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I, by my works, will show you my faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was brought to completion by the works. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Now, it's okay. Does anybody already have trouble with James's teaching on works. It's okay. You can I mean it's okay. We're real. This should be troubling. This is tough and dense stuff. Tonight is going to be a tough and kind of dense night. But I want to say if you had trouble trying to sort out that relationship between faith and works, you're not the first and you won't be the last. Famously, a priest and theologian named Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., The first Martin Luther, 500 years ago, he had a big, big problem with this passage. Because he saw James' words on the relationship between a real faith that expresses itself in works. He saw a big disconnect between James' teaching and Paul's teaching. Paul, of course, wrote a huge chunk of the New Testament. Martin Luther wanted James kicked out of the Bible. He was that frustrated by it because he couldn't reconcile it. But the thing is that centuries of what's now been known as the Protestant Reformation that Martin Luther started, centuries of that kind of theology has distorted James's teaching and set up this false contrast between what James says about faith and works and what Paul says about faith and works. So I just want to say that, but know that we ain't talking about Paul tonight. But I want to tell you this. Paul and James, when they talk about faith and works, they're talking about it from two different angles. They're talking about it from two different angles. And I want to be as crystal clear as I can 
of what James is trying to say. Here is James's argument. It's really not as difficult as it looks. Works alone, that is going to church, that is giving to the poor, that is serving in the homeless ministry, that is saying a kind word to someone, that is fill in the blank with all the good works you see good people doing. You can stack all those good works up, but good works alone, watch, won't get you right with God. I want to be crystal clear. James is saying this. Works alone, stack them as high as the thing goes, won't get you. And that's really crucial for this reason. All the other major religions in the world is some variation on this formula. Ready? Do this, not that. Do this, not that. Do this, not that. Do this, not that. And hopefully you come out the other side and everything's peachy with you and God. Everything, every world religion is some sort of formula that is a works-based way to hedge your bets enough to where you can live forever with God or whoever fill in the blank of your deity. You with me? But Christianity, the faith that James is after, the person and work of Jesus, the good news of the gospel is this. When you could not do one thing to get to Him, don't worry about it. God came to you in the person of Jesus Christ. And you know what's really powerful about our religion too? Is He came to all the wrong kinds of people. And the heroes of our faith are such ridiculous mess-ups. Which is beautiful because I'm a big mess-up right here. I just got a microphone and a Bible. I ain't great. I'm another beggar showing the other beggars where the food's at, and we found it in Jesus. All the works in the world, stack them up, can never get you there. No problem, Jesus came to us. Which leads to the other far extreme that James is saying, and that is this. Just as works alone doesn't save you, a kind of dead, passive faith won't save you either. That's where Martin Luther and readers of Paul get really kind of messed up. I'll tell you why. When Martin Luther separated and launched that movement away from the Catholic Church, he had five statements that he kind of hung his hat on. And they were Latin statements. And one of his statements was sola fide. I remember because my buddy has the five solas tattooed on his arm. And one of the solas, sola fide, means faith alone. A Catholic priest reminded me that James in this passage said, faith by itself, faith alone, does not save. Ah, so what does he mean by faith? I'm with you that good works won't add it up, but what about this kind of faith? What does he mean then? Well, I think what he means and what he gets into as he shows us three illustrations of that relationship between faith and work, the kind of faith that doesn't get you all the way, is a kind of faith where you can just check a box and say, I believe in God. If you're not convinced, we still have more time to sort through James's argument, but let me just say this. Could it be that that kind of faith alone doesn't save us when a vast majority of America still says, I believe in God? Depending on who you ask, 75 to 95% of Americans believe in a supreme being. 
And still a vast majority would say, God. Like the God that I mean when I say God tonight. Yet, if a vast majority profess a faith in this being, why does our country look nothing like the person and work of Jesus? Why is our country still riddled with consumerism and racism and sexism and violence and all kinds of war? That doesn't look like Jesus to me. Well, couldn't it be that just saying, yeah, I believe in God, may not be the kind of faith that James is after. Why? Because real faith expresses itself in works. That's the relationship between faith and works that James is getting at. So, if we look back in our text, we're going to see three illustrations of how faith and works work together. And along the way, I hope that you will have clarity, not more confusion about faith and works. Along the way, I hope you aren't beaten down by a whole other laundry list of works you need to do. Rather, hear me, I hope that in the next few moments, and I promise it'll just be the next few moments, my hope is that you would see and hear a call to live out the faith you profess. Whatever that faith is, you may not be a follower of Jesus. But I hope you hear clearly a call that says real faith and trust in Jesus means you're going to be with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to live like Jesus and then you set off the journey with us. But if you are a Christian and you look back at 2016 and you say, boy, that was an experiment in not getting it right. I hope you hear a call from kindness and grace because if it's from the Spirit of God, it's going to look kind and gracious. And I hope you hear a call that says, God, by your strength and your help, I want to live out what I've always said I believe. I hope that tonight starts to scratch the surface there. But let's start before we get into those three illustrations. Back in verse 14 with James's big, big, big question that we're hinting at tonight. Look with me there. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works? Can faith save you? The short answer that we've already gotten to, I believe, is that faith without works is no good. The answer to James' question is no good, it cannot save. Why? Because saving faith expresses itself in actual works. What James is going to show us in these three illustrations, that if you really have faith in Jesus, it's going to grow legs and feet and you're going to live as if you believe what you say. So the first illustration he gives us is this. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? What is the good of that? I think what's happening here, and we can lose sight because he's talking about loving the needy, What's happening here is an illustration that says, what good is your words of blessing if the person's still starving? And you say, well, man, I would never do that. What does that look like? I'm a good person. Well, when we were talking about this passage with Kathy Kiesler, uh, Kathy, Robin, Bud, and myself, uh, in these sermon series, we try to get together the week before and we pray over the text, we ask questions, and I basically just get all their best ideas and then act like I made it all up myself up here. 
And so when we were talking about this passage, we were actually talking about it back in November. But Kathy told me a story that I still haven't forgotten. Kathy, who's out of town this evening, used to serve in a ministry that would uh, take college students all over the world and to all different kinds of missions and all these kind of orphanages. But one of the things that she did was she took a group of students on what's called a poverty simulation. And this took place in Waco. Amanda, you did this, right? It takes place in Waco because before Waco was known for that HGTV show, (laughs) Fixer Upper, Man, it doesn't look like that all the time. It doesn't look like those beautiful houses. Waco is one of the poorest cities in Texas. It is the poorest for its size. It's not just rich Baylor students. It's actually a really poor city. So they do these things called poverty simulations. And So Kathy took a group of students, and what you do is this. You basically say, well, it's Friday morning. Uh, let's pray. But here's what you're going to do. You're going to take whatever you got on your back and in your backpack, and we'll see you Sunday afternoon. And so what they're done, I may get the timing wrong, but it's effectively they turn you loose to go be homeless for 48 hours by choice. Why would you do a crazy thing like that? I don't know, to maybe open your eyes up to see what thousands of people experience every day just in our city, Dallas, alone. And so what they did was... Kathy went with a couple other students, and they were on their own to sleep outside and to find food wherever they could get it. So Saturday lunch, they are starving. And so what they do is they, what any of us would do, hey, you go to a church, right? Because I think Jesus was all about feeding people. I think he fed like 5,000 with just a couple things, so surely this church can scrape up something. Well, they said they went to five big churches, and they ain't driving, they're walking, Because you can't take your iPad and watch Netflix on the park bench at night. You can't drive your car either in the poverty simulation. So they're walking to five different big churches. Of the five, four of them were locked. Okay, that makes sense. Can't be open 24-7. But then they found one church that was open. Praise God, hallelujah, Jesus. And you know what's even more awesome? That church was doing a luncheon. It was like a big Sunday school luncheon reception. And so here's Kathy and a couple students, and they look pretty rough because they slept outside. And they come up and they say, as sweetly as they can, please, can you give us something to eat? (laughs) And the church says, I'm so sorry, we have nothing for you. Didn't even let them in the building. And you know, as I mentioned earlier, Kathy Kiesler had started an orphanage in Kenya and lives well and generously. But they saw her outward appearance. They saw that she was in need and said, no, actually, we don't have anything for you, even though in the back they had something to meet their needs. And so the illustration here is how faith and works should work out together. The illustration is what good is a blessing? What good is their words if their stomachs are still starving? It's the reason why one of the homeless ministries that we partner with at our calling, they say we don't just do Bible studies because they can't hear the gospel over the sound of their growling stomachs. So in this hypothetical illustration that James gives us, he's starting to get at that relationship of how faith ought to express itself in works. And the point that he's really drilling home is in verse 17. Just as 
faith without works is useless. They are just as useless. Faith without works is as useless as words are to feeding a hungry stomach. And so the illustration makes the point that says, can we who say we believe in Jesus Christ, who in faith we believe because I wasn't there, fed the multitude. I believe that Jesus did that. I believe that Jesus commanded us to go to the poor. I believe in the hundreds of verses in Scripture where God is revealed as one who is caring for the orphan, the widow, the needy. I believe all these beautiful things. I believe the Bible. God said it and that does it. And yet I will look on my brother or sister who's starving, who doesn't have clean water, who is in Kenya, in Bungoma, who's an orphan, and I will lift no finger to do something about it. This is not a true faith. This is something that would rather retweet or share something on Facebook than get out into actual change. Because you know what will not change our neighborhood, and I've said this before, Twitter and Facebook and social media, hear me say this, it brings attention. God bless it. But no repost or retweet I've ever seen has filled the belly of a hungry person sleeping under 45. Is that as clear as I can make it? That's why we got to go down and do something about it. Because if Jesus were walking the streets of Garland, Texas, if He were walking the streets in Dallas, He would not be in this warm place, I don't think, 24-7. He'd be out there. He'd be freezing His butt off under the bridge. And He'd be sharing whatever He got with them. Even if He was homeless Himself. And so here's the call then. Not every one of us can start an orphanage in Kenya. Hello? Not every one of us can write the same amount on a check and put it in these baskets that your neighbor can. But what I'm asking you to do, what James is asking us to do, what we're all asking to do is say, what can you give? You may not have money to give, but what are you giving of your time, heart, and service? To whom are you giving it? Just the people that look like you, that dress like you, that smell like you, that act like you, that you like? Or is it the neighbor who you're called to love as yourself? Because the problem about neighbor, as we've talked about too, is you don't get to pick who your neighbor is. And when Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself, it even means that person. And we all got that person's, you know what I mean? I wrestle with this daily. Jesus, I don't want to love my neighbor as myself. And not even just my physical neighbors who are okay and I like. But God, by Your grace, would You let this faith be active when You've called me to give. Everyone has someone to serve. Everyone has something to give. And may we be a church that doesn't turn people away. May we be a church that works. Why? Because we have faith. The point he drives home in that first illustration is this. Faith without works is as useful as words are to feeding the stomach. So now he has an imaginary objector. Do you see that in verse 18? Well, someone will say, you have faith. That's great. I have works. Y'all remember over here earlier we were talking about the kinds of people that say, well, I have faith. What does that look like in our culture? Can I venture another guess? Maybe it looks like the kind of person that says, God knows my heart. God knows what I believe. I believe rightly about Jesus Christ. 
He was born of a virgin. He died for my sins. He was raised from the grave, and I can live with him forever. These are the things I believe. Before I came to this church, I was a young adult minister in a large Baptist church that saw a lot of different kinds of people. It was a beautiful experience and a really beautiful church. I love that church. And every week I'm meeting with young adults, people who are homeless, people who are um, addicted, people who are teachers and superintendents, all different types of people. But every time I'd sit down with somebody, I'd ask them the same question. Where are you on your journey with Jesus? How many of you in this church have heard me ask or someone ask that question? All these people who are tired of being in meetings or prayer meetings with Adam. Because that's the first question I ask all the time. Where are you on your journey with Jesus? And do you know that in this church, nine times out of ten, the people that I would relate to and see, nine times out of ten, here's how they'd answer that question. Well, I was saved when I was eight. But... There's always the but. Nine times out of ten, they tell me about some beautiful spiritual experience they had when they were a child or in high school or sometime that God got hold of them in their life. But. And I say, oh, that's great. Praise God. But you're 48 now. (laughs) Well, I said, let me tell you. Here's the cool thing about being on a journey with Jesus. It's a journey. And if you keep moving, Jesus is moving too. And the thing I've said in this church, and I'll say again tonight, is if you are so far down the road that you decide to turn around, you ain't got to go 16 miles backwards. When you turn around, Jesus, wouldn't you know it? He's right there. He is right there. You can start that journey today. I don't care what you said or prayed when you were eight. If it has had no bearing on your life for the last 40 years, you said some kind of incantation that looked more like Harry Potter than an actual saving faith that James is talking about. And so that's what we're after. It's that relationship between faith and works, faith and works, closing the gap between what we profess and seeing it expressing itself in action. So the objector says, I prayed a magic prayer when I was eight years old. God knows my heart. James responds, show me your faith, that faith that has had no bearing on your life for 40 years. And then I'll show you my faith That imperfectly as it does, in spits and starts as best as I can by God's grace, is working itself out as I try to be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to look like Jesus. I am not asking you to go earn it. I am not asking you to go drum it up. I'm asking you to turn back to Jesus and say, Lord, I say a lot of things. I want to live a lot of things. Would you help me? Would you surround me with positive people in this church, in this community, in the street, at work, that help me be the kind of person you've called me to be? That's faith in works. That's faith in works. That's faith in works. The whole point is that faith and works are not opposites. He says to the Jewish Christians, he says to them, you can't just keep trying to earn it. He says to the Gentile spiritual philosophers to say, well, God knows my heart, but he, he, doesn't, you know, he needs to stay out of my bedroom. No, no, no. He says to both of them, they're not opposites. They're both sides of the same coin. Faith works and work reveals faith. That's his whole argument. And James goes to an either, even deeper way of trying to illustrate this point. If you'll look back with me in verse 19. He says, you believe that God is one. That would be the Jewish equivalent of Jesus died for my sins and I believe in God. In America today. You with me? 
God is one is from the greatest commandment. Who did the Jesus creed us in this church? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That is what they put on their foreheads. That's what they said five times a day. That's what they prayed. That's what they lived. That is the best thing you could ever say about God. And James says this. Great. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. I love how the message translates it. Look with me on the screen. He says, do I hear you professing to believe in the one and only God? but then observe you complacently sitting back as if you had done something wonderful? That's just great. Demons do that, but what good does it do them? Use your heads. Do you suppose for a minute that you can cut faith and works in two and not end up with a corpse on your hands? Here's the difference that James is getting at. You'll notice by this point that I'm saying the same thing over and over in different ways. But just in case, here's another way to say it on the screen. Religious culture's definition of faith is a passive agreement to doctrine. But James's and all of Scripture's, even Paul's, his definition of faith is this transformational trust. One version of that faith has a brainy belief like I just recited to you earlier. The other version of faith has hands, feet, and a heart that puts belief into action. You see the thing, if I use the old analogy, and I bring, I bring this chair up over here, and I say, you know what, I have faith, and I can say to this chair, chair, I trust you. I trust you, chair. But is my faith really faith? Is it really trust? If I look at that chair and say, dude, I would never sit in that freaking chair, that's janky. A real trust, a real faith that the chair can support me, that can hold me up, would be one in which I could actually sit and put my weight on it. What James is after, what Scripture is after, is the kind of trust, the kind of faith that transforms your heart and transforms your actions. It's transformational trust. So as we wind down to a close, there are two more illustrations James gives us about how faith and works move together. The first was that issue of the poor. That hypothetical, it says, do we care about who God cares about? Are we going to put food and clothes to it, not just words? The second and third illustrations are from the Old Testament. The first is a guy named Abraham. I'm not going to read the passage. We read it earlier. But if we would put uh, like verses uh, 20 to whatever's up there, 24. You guys can take a look. But he's introducing us to Abraham. Who is Abraham? You can tell me. You can ask me. Mark, I know you want to say who Abraham is. Oh, well. Father Abraham had many sons. I would have accepted that as an answer too. You hear that, Robert? That could have been gold star number two, bro. He was the father of Israel. God sought him out when he was doing his own thing. And God said, guess what, Abraham? I'm going to make you the father of an entire nation. And Abraham said, dude, I'm 80 years old. That ship has sailed. Is that what it said in Genesis? In Genesis 12, we see Abraham believing God's promise to build a nation, even though he was in old age and his wife was old too and had never had children. And then in Genesis 22, James cites or quotes when he put his faith into action. When he moved from saying, chair, look, I trust you, or God, I trust you that you'll build a nation, 
He moved from talking to the chair to sitting in the chair. And he did it really dramatically and famously. When God finally gave him the son that was promised, Abraham had enough trust, enough faith, to take that son on a long day's journey up a mountain Even though Isaac, his son, didn't know where they were headed, Abraham, and it grieved him, I'm sure. It scared him, I'm sure. But he had enough faith and trust to say, I think God has asked me to sacrifice you. And you can imagine the tears streaming down his face as he's binding his own son. And God says, whoa, stop. It wasn't a test. But it was this really transformational moment where the Father of God's people starts this nation on a supreme demonstration of His faith. And what's incredible here is that James, if you look with me in verse 22, he says, you see that faith was active along with His works. And faith was, look, brought to completion by the works. There's another dimension to that relationship between faith and works. Where there's some sense that what Abraham believed in Genesis 12 about God was nice. But then sometime later in Genesis 22, he closed the gap. He completed it. It grew hands and feet and it made him sit and it was active. And that's what James is getting after. This is an incredible illustration. An incredible demonstration. And James said because he had a faith that expressed itself in works. Abraham was in a right relationship with God, even God's friend. Wouldn't you love to be called God's friend? Can I tell you that if you are in Christ, you are more than just His friend. You are a beloved son. You are a beloved daughter. If you have put your faith and sat in the Jesus chair, if you're with me, you are loved immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. There is not one work you could do or not do that would separate you from the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus. And if you don't believe me, read Paul in Romans chapter 8. There is no height, nor depth, nor ruler, nor demon, nor angel, nor anything in all creation that can separate you from the love that God has for you. You're in right relationship with God. And the litmus test is a faith that's expressing itself and spits and starts, good, bad, the ugly, but every day showing up and saying, Jesus, I'm here, help. I want to be with you, to learn from you, how to live like you. The third illustration of faith is Rahab, which is so incredible. Who is Rahab? A prostitute you run on, which means there's hope for everybody. Rahab was a prostitute and she was not one of God's people. You can write down in your notes Joshua 2 as we draw down to a close. Joshua 2. It's this incredible story where she had heard the story of how God had rescued his people from Egypt. And she said, yep, yep, that God has to be the real God. So when two spies of God's people come knocking on her door, she says, oh, okay, you're with that guy? Yeah, I'm going to move what I believe about God into action And I'm going to not cross that God. So I will be hospitable to you. And these two spies came in. She hid them on her roof when her king and her nation came looking for him to kill him. She protected them. And it's so powerful that James uses this illustration. But he brings home the point in verse 26. 
For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. Both, this is on the screen, Old Testament examples show us that faith works. In that it works out, right? Faith that works is evidence that you're right with God. Which brings us all the way back as we close to our big question we started with in verse 14. What good is it if you say you have faith but don't have works? Well, works alone and dead faith alone do not save us. But a faith that is expressed by our works is a faith that says you're His, you're loved. And so I want to close tonight with another big question, and this is on the screen too. This is the question for all of us. It's the question that I've been wrestling with. How is God calling you to put your faith into action this year? And let me tell you how you might begin to sift and sort that out. You know right now in this moment of that nagging little thing in your head and your heart. That nagging thing that you just know that God is calling you to just, man, go for it. It's what Kathy preached so beautifully last week when she was ready to skydive. What is that one thing in the new year where you're looking out the edge of the plane and you know you got to jump. You know you're compelled to jump. You know there's no way but to jump. But you just got to jump. What is it in this new year? What is it that you have to give? What is it that you have to surrender? What is it that you have to work? Everybody's got something to give. How is God calling you to put your faith into action this year. Soon to be former President Barack Obama gave his farewell address this week, and to me, it was more of a rallying call than a reflective goodbye. And the, rally, the rallying call that I love, the few quotes that I love, were these. He says, If you're tired of arguing with strangers on the internet, try talking to one of them in real life. That's President Obama, verse 2 through four of if you're tired of looking out the plane jump and he said this I like this one if something needs fixing then lace up your shoes and get organized show up and stay at it he wasn't looking for votes anymore that ship has sailed he uses his last address to say do something and so tonight James gives us an even greater rallying cry as we close if you're tired of empty words, let your faith in Jesus express itself in world-changing, life-giving, kingdom-on-earth work. So Lord, may we go out and live our faith in You, through You, and for You. And so Lord, we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. May God our Father Himself and our Master Jesus clear the road for you. And may the master pour on his love so it fills your lives and splashes over on everyone around you, just as it does from us to you. May you be infused with strength and purity, filled with confidence in the presence of God our Father, when our master Jesus arrives with all his followers. Amen. Go in peace.